This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm June Thomas. Today our club members are discussing Tree of Smoke by Dennis Johnson. Here's our host, Megan O'Rourke. Hello, I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's literary editor, and I'm welcoming you today to our monthly audio book club. Our participants today are one of our regulars, Katie Royfe, a Slate contributor and a professor at New York University's School of Journalism and a guest visitor, James Sirwicki, a Slate contributor and the financial columnist for The New Yorker magazine. Welcome to both of you. Today we are talking about Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke, about which there is some real diversity of opinion, we think. It's a big, sprawling book about Vietnam, and um, we'll get into the plot a little bit more as we go through, but it's very much the story of William Skip Sands, a... um, spy in training of sorts who's engaged in psyops in Vietnam um, and it, it but it's also the story of Bill and James Houston or Houston I don't know how we're supposed to pronounce their names but I think Houston and a woman named Kathy Jones and a kind of mysterious enigmatic CIA veteran known as the Colonel who I'm eager for us to talk about but it's it's one of these books that spans 20 years though most of it is concentrated in the years between 1963 and 1968 I believe or 1969 so just to get us started what did you two make of the book what are your initial impressions well for one thing I I suppose uh, I found this book somewhat overwhelming. It's meant to reflect in its plot, I think, the morass that was Vietnam and successfully does that to the sometimes detriment of clarity. But I think it's a really beautiful book. I think it's at times its beauty is its um, drawback and is actually, in a way, a literary flaw. I feel that he really conveyed, certainly in a kind of poetic way, this attraction to the violence in Vietnam, the repulsion, the nihilism, a very particular kind of nihilism of a boy from the middle of the country who comes into this intense experience. And yet, it's too perfect sometimes. And one of the things, and maybe I just, the writing is too perfect. And And just to read a passage of dialogue, 
on page 306, it'll give you a sense of what I mean. Sometimes this sort of colloquial, profane, accidental poetry in the way that these soldiers talk to each other seems to me to be too much. Um, And on page, actually, it's 307, I want to start reading. The colonel tore a baguette in half and said, I tell you this sincerely, there better not be a man at this table who in any way fears death. Hear, hear, Skip said. It's all death anyway, Storm said. Oh, I forgot, the colonel said with a mouthful of baguette. Mr. Jimmy thinks he's a samurai. I'm just moving through the motions, Papa-san. Death is the basic condition. What do you know about it, really? No, no, the universe had to come from somewhere, right? Wrong. It had to come from nowhere, the big nothing. Mr. Jimmy follows the Buddha. I follow a completely different mode of Buddhism. Mr. Surgeon Jimmy studies the Tibetan. I study the knowledge of the moves after death, the realm of the bardo. What to do at each part of the journey after you die. It's full of wrong turns leading back here, man, back to planet E. I'm not coming back. It's a shithole. It's a shithole with fireworks, the colonel said. So that's too perfect in the sense of what? (laughs) That these guys wouldn't speak that way? I think they would, and I think it's too poetic. And I think it's the kind of poetry that I'm talking about is his particular, and as I say, very beautiful kind of dialogue, which is both profane, colloquial, um, and also too poetic. That there's something in this, it's a shithole with fireworks. It's too perfect. And my other problem with it, and I was talking about this with Megan, is that all the characters... Uh, speak the same way. And so, in fact, this kind of heightened sort of um, dirty language, poetic way that they're talking in the jungle here is the way every single character speaks. And that that in and of itself creates a certain confusion, like which is which, just technically in a novel of this length. But I also think it undermines the verisimilitude. And I think one of the big things in a, in a war novel that's interesting is the dialogue. And he is a master of dialogue. But I think it is a problem that every single character here sounds the same. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I noticed this when you were reading. It was something I thought about a lot. Reading the book, too, is the, how few dialogue tags there are, how few times he tells us exactly who was speaking. So there were many conversations where I actually had to go back through and resort out for myself and almost make notations who was speaking. So I... I absolutely have the same experience that you did of the dialogue. I also loved the dialogue and had written in my notes, you know, the dialogue is one of the best things about the book, just that it, it's so intense and it brings you into this place of kind of metaphysical speculation, but it also sometimes seemed kind of real, kind of, you know, the way people might speak, but I don't know. I, I wouldn't. It's a very writerly v- translation, well, I, I think. A lot about the passages in this one, too, like the, at the very end of it, the way he ends these sections, he'll have these intense sections of dialogue where there is this kind of, as you say, you know, commingling of the sacred and the prof- profane, and you have the sense of there's a there's an actual kind of metaphysical debate happening. There's something about God, there's something about meaning, there's something about death and life. And then he'll have this kind of two-sentence wrap-up at the very end, which as we go through what you just read and you come down to the end, the colonel starts to fall asleep and he's talking about his family came from Ireland, came over from Ireland. His head nodded forward and he was deeply asleep. In this way began the year of the monkey, which I love. But so many of the sections sort of end with this little bit of summation like that. Um, And it is repetitive stylistically. And a little heavy-handed. I mean, we have lines like 352. It's kind of complicated. Is it? Is there anything not kind of complicated in this fuck-a-monkey show? (laughs) And it sounds like maybe there are soldiers that could talk that way, but I just don't believe that they're all talking that way. They're all talking. And the other problem, and this is a linked problem, um, is that 
as I was saying, there's two. There's a couple of main characters in this book. One is Colonel, one is um, Skip Sands, who's the CIA agent, and another is um, Bill and James Houston, and um, they both have nearly indistinguishable, totally dysfunctional relationships with their mothers back home. And their mothers back home are, in fact, so similar that they blur in your mind. And that could be a literary device. But one of the problems with that is that these characters are merging together too much. And in their relation to their family back home, one of the themes that he's hitting here is that it's kind of a release to be in the jungle because you're away from those demanding women back home. I mean, in a certain sense, that's part of what's going on here. And it's a little bit, just a little bit, more about the themes than the people. And I think it's, you know, that is what it is. You don't necessarily have to hate a book that's more about themes than its people, but the people here are certainly not distinct. And that is a difficulty in a book of this length in terms of plot and, and in terms of just reading and wanting to read more. I think there is a kind of way in which you do get lost in the morass the way the soldiers in Vietnam get lost in the morass. I mean, I'm not sure I actually really think that Bill and James and Skip are indistinguishable. I mean, it's a little tricky because Bill and James Houston are the two two of the main characters in Johnson's first novel, Angels. So, which is an, I mean, an incredible book. I think you know one of the best. Uh, probably I would say one of the best novels of the last thirty years, at least American novels. And it may so it may be that if you've read that book. Bill and James are relatively clear in your heads so that all the way through this book, you're kind of – and they're, they are very much the same characters as they are to some extent in, in Angel. So maybe that it's like easier to keep in your mind who they are and distinguish in them from, from Skip. But I mean I think you're right about the, the characters, many of them sounding the same. I, I'm not entirely convinced that that – the kind of crazy poeticism of the way they speak is entirely – false. I mean, if you read, it's certainly not unusual in Vietnam books. I mean, if you read Michael Hare's Dispatches, which this book harkens to in some ways, or Stephen Wright's Meditations in Green, you have a similar kind of uh, language, a similar kind of voice, character saying, speaking in this kind of wondrous sort of language, slightly poetic, so oftentimes not even slightly. But, I mean, I do think it's true that mostly the characters sound like Dennis Johnson. I mean, if you think about Jesus' son, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, the narrator's voice is, to a certain extent, similar to this kind of voice. And um, I guess I'm just not convinced that realism is really much of an issue, is really something you should be worrying too much about here. I mean, I do think it's different when you say, what's interesting is when you say it's a sprawling novel, in a strange way, it doesn't actually feel sprawling. I mean, I think when you hear sprawling novels, especially with big novels, you think of, you know, War, let's say War and Peace being a classic example. But but the sprawling there is not just a physical sprawling, it's also a kind of sprawling of character. You have lots of different characters who are all distinct. Or This book doesn't actually feel exactly... Like that, I think. I mean, how sprawling yet claustrophobic. Yeah, the claustrophobic. (laughs) It does feel very claustrophobic. Right. Yeah. But you know, as you say that, I mean, I I agree with you, Jim, that I thought verisimilitude wasn't exactly um, the prime thing that I was evaluating the book by. But when you bring up Jesus the Son and angels, it makes me realize something about what I did find slightly less successful about this book. I mean, those are two of my favorite books, and Angels in particular I really love, and again, it is about Bill and James. But there's so much difference of situation and texture in both of those books. Even Angels, a lot of which is kind of claustrophobically set in sort of this in one place, it begins with a bus ride, and there's a lot of very 
you, you're in the city at one point, and then you're in the desert, and then you're in jail, and there are these incredibly rendered places. And Jesus' son, also, so much of the dialogue, which is kind of like this. It's like you're hearing, as you say, I think it is like you're hearing Dennis Johnson. But so much of it is set in these really memorable places and situations. And I think, Katie, what you were saying about claustrophobia is exactly right. Like, wait, you're saying... There are similitude. Wait, 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 wait. You think angels and Jesus' son, the places are more vivid than in, than in Tree of Smoke? No, no, no. I think there's more differentiation. So that I think I felt more in one place entirely in this novel. See, that's surprising because yeah. when I think of Jesus' son or I think of angels, I mean, I think of them as that it's, you know, all one. I mean, they're both basically these very small worlds, worlds of the down and out, basically people scamming, trying to get by. I mean, you know, angels is a little different because you have the long section in prison, which which does kind of separate. But it's not clear to me that's that different from you know, maybe the journey this, at the end. But when you say, like, I mean, as Megan was saying, this book moves to very different parts of Asia. Yeah. And yet they all blend together a little bit in certain <laughs> ways, and that's what she's saying. But my point about the verisimilitude is not that that's how we should judge this book or that that necessarily matters. My actual question underlying that question is why do we care, right? We have 615 pages of novel here, roughly. And so the burden on the writer is not give me a world I believe is true. The burden on the writer is give me a world I care about. And I feel that he risks that at certain places. And the way he risks that is by not creating characters that we care about. And that this sort of seductive, appealing kind of boy type of nihilism, which I I can understand it's seductive and appealing, is limited to a certain extent in this book. Wait, wait, it's limited. What do you, you mean? The I just effects mean, of it are limited? I just or? mean, I can't care that much. Like, I can't care <laughs> 615 pages all the way through. I, I just can't. I saw the one point whether if I were a man, I would feel differently about this novel. One of those impossible questions to answer and probably not a very useful question, except that, as you say, like, the women, there are no women in this book except these mothers who are kind of, you know, age before their time and want money and are heartbroken that their, their sons have gone to seed. And then there is this one woman, Kathy Jones, who's... I don't even know how to describe she's her. She's a sort of fascinating character, her. though. But, but she, she's about to be fascinating, and then she never quite was fascinating. I was waiting for her to be fascinating. And it's interesting that the novel ends with her. But I didn't find her fascinating, ultimately. Um, because, I, again, I didn't feel like... You should tell Slay something about who she was, who she is. Um, well, why don't you go ahead or someone go ahead? She's just the, the wife of a missionary. She's uh, sort of, I don't know, fanatical or hardcore Christian, basically, who has this strange relationship with Skip, and the two of them are kind of ships that pass in the night, I guess, is right. I mean, they sort of meet once. And it's also such a non-relationship. It's like somehow at the end of their lives, they're like, we were in love. But then you're like thinking, you know, maybe they slept together a couple of times. Yeah. But they also barely knew each other. She would write him these letters, and he didn't respond to them. He was bored out of his mind by her letters. Her letters were sort of... (laughs) <laughs> crazy rantings and you didn't get a sense actually of a real relationship with here you know yeah. in any sense no. and nor do you get a sense and I, I had the same response as Megan that you felt like this character was sort of intriguing and what they did with the sexual relationship especially that second time when she comes back is interesting but it's all so shallow compared to everything else going on in the book and you know oh, there are these prostitutes oh. who float in and out obviously we didn't even mention them because they're so you know they're right. just like part of the decor 
but um, several of them get disemboweled. <laughs> I guess only one of them gets disemboweled. Yeah, and there's a pretty disturbing I don't rape even scene. That. Actually, there's a pretty disturbing <laughs> rape scene. I have no recollection of yeah. that happening. James is involved with. It's why he gets sent home. Basically, it's like a group rape. Oh, yeah, okay. of a of a woman of a young. Well, we think she's. And one of the con. reasons why you might not have noticed it. Let's just say. <laughs> one of the reasons is that in this massive sprawling book, it's like one paragraph. Right. It honestly is given so little space. Well, and actually, I wrote to myself, torture, question mark, after, <laughs> at the end of the paragraph, because there's this group rape, and then it says that James put his knife, I'll find yeah. the passage, put his knife to her belly and began to interrogate her. But you don't know whether he's actually, there's been a previous scene where men are... But uh, then it's implied that he. I think it was implied that he later, killed her. It is. They actually say yeah, when they murder, send him you home, murder, right? Him home. And, but there's this gap where you don't know exactly what happened. And I actually think one question I had for us, and we don't have to answer it now, is sort of about reading this novel now, reading of Vietnam. You know, periodically, um, when I used to edit fiction, we would periodically get stories about Vietnam. And at one point before 9/11, there was this conversation of kind of, well, what makes a Vietnam like. You know, can you keep writing Vietnam stories or novels forever? Or at some point, haven't we, re- you know, haven't we read the things they carried? Haven't we read Michael Harris' dispatches? You know, now, I think reading this novel, I kept thinking about Dennis Johnson writing it in the light of Iraq of, and uh, Iraq and of torture and Guantanamo. But you know, I don't know whether that was just me or not. He actually has a great um, on page three hundred nine. I know it seems like I only read these three pages of the book because yeah. I keep quoting them, but on page three hundred nine. He has a great passage (laughs) where he says, and I thought this kind of represented a lot about war, a larger point about war. They threw hand grenades through doorways and blew the arms and legs off ignorant farmers. They rescued puppies from starvation and smuggled them home to Mississippi in their shirts. They burned down whole villages and raped young girls. They stole medicines by the jeep load to save the lives of orphans. And I think that's a great passage because yeah. it gets at, like, the, the crazy pathological ambiguities and all the, mm-hmm. like, good intentions and bad intentions and, like, the evil and the good and all of that. In a well, that's sort like of there's a scene in Dispatches way. where hers with these um, guys who are throwing uh, food out of the uh, – out of a helicopter, delivering it to some poor Vietnamese village, and the guy is like, bomb them and feed them, man, bomb them and feed them. And that's basically, you know, exactly what that's about is kind of this weird mix. And that seems, I think what Johnson is suggesting there, which I find very congenial as an idea, is this, you know, that that's also very peculiarly American, this kind of balance of sentimentality and and cynicism and bitterness and violence and all that, which, you know, I think is very true. That seems very accurate about about it. I mean, I sort of wondered from a kind of career point of view whether or not this is a book that he'd been working on for a long time. Is this a book he had just suddenly decided to start to write? I mean, because one of the things that's interesting about the book, and I think one of the challenges it from a from a reading point of view is, and this is Katie alluded to it earlier, is it's not exactly clear why the novel needs to be this long in the sense that plot isn't really Johnson's strong point. I mean, I think he – well, actually, I don't know. He said in that short interview in the New York Times, he said, I think this is the best plotted novel I've written or something, which I'm not really sure what what exactly that that means. But, but I actually do think Johnson's best books are – his shorter book. So I, I, I mean, I think Angels and Fiscadoro, Jesus, a son, that those are really his best books. Although the last, the book before Already Dead was pretty short and that was fine. But I do think he is just trying to create an atmosphere here. I mean, I think when I think of the book, that's mostly what I think of is just kind of the mood that he creates, just kind of the sense of being in the middle 
of it. And then just this kind of, you know, beautiful mix of uh, profanity and of the profane and the sacred. I mean, I think, but that was why I was sort of interested. I, you know, I was interested when I read, I read it a few months ago and I was interested. I think I, I mentioned this to, earlier to you that, you know, I was interested in whether women would like this book. I mean, Michiko really liked it, Michiko Kakatani. But, you know, I, I think it is a, I don't know if it's a very male book. It's certainly a very Dennis Johnson book. I mean, I think it's a, if I were a reader, this would not be the first Dennis Johnson book I would start with. I would start with the other works and see if you liked it, because like them, because if you don't like them, I don't think you're going to like this, really. Um, I think it's just very distinctive in that in that sense. Well, you know, I think the gender question is always complicated because for millions of reasons, and I don't think there are sort of women's books and men's books, but certainly um, this book fits the category we think of as being male when we use those labels, um, which is to say it is about war, it is primarily about men. And as we were saying before, the, the women in this book are very undeveloped, and they're just, they're seen completely through the men's eyes, except Kathy, but then Kathy isn't fully... One thing that is interesting, I think this is kind of what Katie was talking about and what you, you've been touching on is, there are really relationships in the book, for the most part, right? I mean, or the relationships that exist are very... Cur- People tend kind of exist in isolation from yes. each other, essentially. And what's interesting about that, and I don't know if this is good or bad or intentional or just completely random, is the book is... If the book has a kind of structure or uh, it's supposed to be about or or kind of a narrative structure it's partly about these conspiracies these plots skip getting kind of wrapped up in this sense of everything's connected you know the colonel and yet ultimately everything seems to be disconnected right i mean that's what's a tree of smoke basically but but from a from a reader's point of view it is a little strange because people well, they don't. They have conversations, but they don't really seem to have like any emotional interchange. For yeah, I. But I think that is actually back to the quite on the gender issue okay. for this reason, which is that it's true. One of the characters gets married and with to an Eskimo woman when he goes back home, and they have like a couple week marriage, and then he just wanders off. And right. then Skip Sands has slept with five women in his life, I think, five or right. at, in, at, in the main Kathy. part of the, including Kathy, which is sort of... And she's the only one and who slept with more than one. She's the only one who slept point. with more than one. So basically, we are talking about totally isolated, freakish people. Right. Yeah. But what I think the gender thing is, is the romanticization of that. And right. the particular way he romanticizes it, which I think is connected to these scenes I keep alluding to. I don't have one on hand, but they're sort of the moment where they're in the jungle and they're like, this is great. Right. This is intense. Well, I'm James in the heart of darkness. Point, I'm far James. away from yes. human well, society. There are no women be. bothering me right. here. Yeah. Right. You know, And they're constantly like some woman will send them letters, like their mother, their girlfriend. They're like, I don't have to read this. Or one of them has this relationship with this woman, Stevie, and he's constantly fleeing from her and wondering how on earth he can get away from her. So the particular male fantasy and what it is romanticizing is maybe a little off-putting, I would think, to a female reader, just because, I mean, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting. Mm -hmm. But this particular, like, snapshot of the male psyche, which is recognizable, is in its romanticization, as I say, very male. And it's the romanticizing part, I think, is male. That's what James said. I mean, when James is home after he's gone through basic training, or he's got a furlough, he goes back and he's with with Stevie, and she says... uh, Every single thing in the world is slowly burning up. This actually speaks to your thing about the dialogue. Every single thing in the world is slowly burning up. She's a 16-year-old girl. I'm not sure she would. She said, and he says, yeah, is it? I don't get you. Everything's oxidizing. Everything in the world. 
He gathered she'd come by this news in her chemistry class. That's pretty funny. During basic, he thought of her continually, but it was nothing. Per- he thought of her continually, but it was nothing personal. He thought just about as often about at least seven other girls from their high school. And then he says, being with her here, even surrounded by these unbounded spaces, he felt trapped in a vice. And then later he says, having returned to the world he'd grown up in, he had no idea to how to sit in a room with his mother or what to say to the 16-year-old girl, no idea how to get through a few days in his life until he shipped through to Louisiana for advanced infantry training. Yeah, yeah. which is so no. perfect, and it yeah. really makes you think. I mean, I imagine that that is an accurate portrayal of something, not just in men going to war, though that too, but also in men in general. general yeah. And that feeling, he, I mean, I haven't really seen it written about elsewhere that much, and it's kind of um, chilling and yet compelling. <laughs> and, I, and it makes you think this whole war is, in a way, just a metaphor for this thing, like I get to go to the jungle away from human society, as I keep saying, to the heart of darkness. There's something about this yeah. war that feels very metaphorical. And to me, I think that links with what Megan said, that the background is kind of hazy. Mm-hmm. Even though it's very scenic and atmospheric, as you say, it does feel like a metaphor. It feels like Sartre's no exit. or you yeah. know, There's ways in which it seems like this backdrop, it's not, he's not really writing about war. Yeah. He's writing about the condition of nihilism and violence and loneliness and in the human soul. Yes. Yes. Okay. But I think that's right. I mean, and you do see that. You do see that go through the book. As you say, there are these instances where um, – they entertain the notion of being at home and they recoil from it. And in fact, when James is being sent home, James volunteers for several tours of duty and people sort of look at him like he's crazy. But when he's when he's actually raped and murdered this or just murdered this woman and is sent home, he does not want at all to go home. And your distinct sense is that it's because he's going to lose this. One thing that I think is the case is it's not so much that the men... It's not that the male, it's exactly as you say, it's not that the male relationships are portrayed more strongly than the female relationship. It's just that men in this book know to let one another go quickly, and they don't um, make many claims on one another, with the possible exception of the colonel and his relationship with Skip Sands. But one passage that leapt out at me when I was reading it is that when James Houston is kind of saying goodbye to some of his very first friends as soldiers, they're all going off in their separate ways. And Johnson writes, they embraced one another and James put all his concentration into damming back the tears. They all swore to meet again. James assumed they never would. But it's like the women never assume that. And so the men are always in the position of having to kind of push them back a little bit. And I think that does. And the men are also, but always betraying each other. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. It's Mm -hmm. like some of the men are always betraying the other men. And it's sort of unclear even in the book, which and which, but there's always this specter of the being betrayed. The men are either going to die or betray each other somehow. So even the men's friendships are sort of like stunted and limited and <laughs> depressing and lonely. But, I, you know, I, I think what I, I would really disagree with the phrase, nihil, with the word nihilistic. Like, I don't think, I don't think this is really a, supposed to be nihilistic. Exactly. No, it isn't. That's why maybe we should talk about the silly ending now. Okay, yeah. well, but I mean, I, I, agree. Do think yeah. that, I do think that part of what mm-hmm. I mean, the colonel is kind of an interesting figure and, and a curious one, but I don't actually think he's supposed to be Kurtz in a way. I think it may be that there's something else going on, but I, I definitely think with the other characters that it's not that they have found anything or whatever, but there is some sense in which they are looking for something deeper and that the isolation, I think, is supposed to, and this is probably just my own personal bias, is supposed to carry a kind of, has a dimension of a kind of spiritual quest to it, basically. Yeah, I think that's absolutely that true. That's why I looking, say romanticize. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I don't I think, think it's nihilistic true. in the sense of, I don't think 
they're just... I mean, James is kind of a complicated character but in that regard. But I, I think there is this sense that there's something out there they're looking for that they're not finding. They're not finding Skip it in women. In they're not finding it in their family. They're not finding it in their personal relationships. But they have this idea that it's... Maybe it's the country. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's... And I think it's God. It's the overarching kind of idea, I think, and whatever God means. But... Yeah, and I think this is true of John, all of Johnson's work. Um, you know, Angels is very much that way. That's sort of how that book ends, is Bill in prison kind of finding something. I don't know what it is exactly. But. It's definitely confusing in this book, though. I mean, I thought, you know, and I like the book quite a lot. I thought there was going to be more salvation in it. There was, in terms of a ratio of kind of salvation to despair, and I think there actually are nihilistic moments in here. There are moments where they flirt with nihilism, where they really look at the abyss and don't find very much. And then there are other moments where they embrace Buddhism, where they talk about God, and there's a lot of Catholicism in here, too. But there was less of that search and salvation uh, in here than I than I kind of ultimately thought there would be. Skip seemed to me to embody the most of it, and and Skip ultimately ends up dying because in some ways he's so alienated by what he thinks America has become, and so alienated by his perception of America as a you know a, a, he uses some term near the end like a vast crime. Right something that he decides he's going to work for the smaller crime people. Right. You know? So he becomes a total criminal. And he yeah. becomes a criminal in the, right. in the process. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead, Katie. I'm but sorry. I was going to say, I think the model is less religion, um, in spite of the ending, which just feels totally unnatural to me, than addiction. Because mm. to me that this book, I mean, and mm-hmm. obviously if you know about Jonathan is writing, it, it has something to do with this. But to me the book, in its quest for intensity mm-hmm. and its totally unsatisfying version of salvation is more about addiction and recovery. And it mirrors that as an emotional yeah. landscape well, a little bit. Religion and obviously religion part is that. part of that. Yeah. Or right. the, it's sort of masked. But to me, part of the thing is that the addiction part of the story is more compelling always than the redemption part of the story. <laughs> because, you know, day one day at a time, higher power, all that stuff, it's never very inspiring that the other part of the story which is really like the nihilism the quest for this intensity this moment of like seeking out deep feeling is more compelling oh wait but that's confusing to me because i would say that's the spirit that's spiritual i mean right i mean the mystics like the whole point of mysticism is that that's what you get from it, right? Okay, it's not, so maybe it's that part of the spiritual that yeah. I find more convincing yeah. than the other part the kind which of recovery, is more the, la, right and that la, part at the end which i think we should talk about because maybe we had a difference of opinion about it. I mean, the book, is it spoiling to say the last line? No, I think we can, well, we're alerting our listeners that there is going to be a spoiler. But yeah. Um, it's not much But it's not much of a spoiler. <laughs> Even if you read the book, it right. won't make much sense. It right. won't make much sense. At the <laughs> end of the book, there's a very long sentence that reads like this. Well, you should say who it is. Oh, Kathy Jones is in the audience. Yes, and she's just gotten a letter from Skip, which reveals to her that Skip has been hanged for his crime, his gun smuggling crimes. Well, and he also confesses oh. his love for her, somewhat <laughs> bewildering, somewhat <laughs> bewilderingly confesses his love for her. She sat in the audience thinking, someone here has cancer, someone has a broken heart, someone's soul is lost, someone feels naked and foreign, thinks they once knew the way but can't remember the way, feels stripped of armor and alone. There are people in this audience with broken bones, others whose bones will break sooner or later, people who've ruined their health, worshipped their own lies, spat on their dreams, turned their backs on their beliefs. Yes, yes, and all will be saved. All will be saved. All will be saved. 
nice. And it's it's strange because it comes right after a conversation People which she describes. <laughs> it comes right after a conversation in which she describes her having fallen away from the faith to a woman who was a Christian aid worker way back in the day with her. Right. So it's very peculiar because we've just been told she's. No, and it's the well, ending it's you want. Peculiar. It is the ending you want, right? If you've just read 614 <laughs> pages, it's Long the ending pages. you want for this book. Like, all you broken, wounded, damaged people will be cured. It's what you're looking for, you, the seekers of this, reading this, miring your way through this book. But to me, it doesn't fit with anything in the book. It doesn't fit with the deeper and more actually interesting themes of the book. It's He tacked it on and he needed a way out. But I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like it came out of this book to me, mm. or this character, to or me. the character, or the character. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm so. not entirely sure it's exactly tacked on. Maybe because many of Johnson's other books have a similar kind of ending. I mean, Jesus' Son ends with the sort of main character, basically, who's this addict, petty criminal. His life's totally screwed up, and he ends up getting this job at this like kind of it's like a, a nursing home or and um with all these kind of broken people or whatever and i think the last line is something like i had never in the world imagined there would be a place for someone like me but but i think this is a little different i mean i think the point of this i have no idea if we're supposed to believe it or if it's just this is a kind of forlorn hope that that is just evoked in Kathy at the end or whatever. But to the extent that it's plausible, I think it's important that it's not cured. It's actually just saved. That actually it's really just you're not, and the fact that Kathy has fallen away is, you know, is from this perspective kind of irrelevant because grace isn't something that you earn. It's just something that's given to you. I mean, it's like saying the end of Brisson's pickpocket is like unearned because suddenly, you know, he has this kind of Revelation. I mean, it's a, that's most of Robert Brisson's films turn on this kind of moment of grace, and I think that's partly what. The, if we're supposed to take it seriously, and the fact that I maybe don't know is maybe a problem with the book, but that was kind of how I sort of. Yeah, I just didn't think Dennis Johnson did a good job of getting us from point A to point B in that, that passage. Um, oh, in the passage. Yeah, I just didn't think that that. I mean, it's clear that that's what he wants. That it is this moment of grace. I just didn't totally. And I want it, as Katie said, I was there ready to be. You kind of I wanted that grace, ending. You, right. you want that, but I just didn't feel that. You know, in the way that I felt like a certain the end of Angels, I think is one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing um, in contemporary American fiction. It's just amazing, you know. But I didn't feel that with this at all. Even though I like the sentiment, I like that there's this moment of grace because I'm sort of a sucker for that at the end of novels, as we know from our discussion of The Road. Oh, that that's a much better ending. In terms yeah, of that stuff. yeah. But, but you really, know, I want to say, want to ask one question oh. though, or go ahead. But I just. <laughs> One thing I'll say is uh, there's a whole theme of betrayal that I think we need to talk about a little bit more, too, but in relationship to this idea of being saved. But go ahead and say what you were going to. Well, we can talk about that. But, I, but you know, I wanted to talk about I think it might be interesting, um, especially for people who haven't read the book, to talk about kind of the bigger picture of this, the, the kind of surrounding debate around the book. Because what's interesting about the book is that uh, it was probably the most acclaimed novel of the year in some ways. So uh, Jim Lewis, a friend of ours, wrote a uh, glowing front-page review in the Times, book review of it. Michiko, although she called it flawed, liked it uh, quite a bit. It won the National Book Award. It was, but at the same time, um, you know, B.R. Myers sort of famously attacked, I don't know, maybe attacked it in the Atlantic Monthly. That's sort of trivially interesting. But what's more interesting is I've had a number of people actually say I couldn't finish it. Like, 
you really like people actually asking me you really like that book and so there was this kind of sense that there's some kind of con i mean basically what br myers argues in his piece yeah it's called the bright shining lie is that there's some kind of con job going on here that that you know dennis johnson is an acclaimed writer and so people sort of you know, kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Here. Well, yeah, and he's making a particular argument. I was going to read from um, his piece, but I think you just gave a good summary of it. But he's making the particular argument that that critics like writers who can write what Katie was calling kind of, you know, beautiful poetic prose and particularly beautiful poetic sentences. And so they're giving him a free pass on the fact that it's badly plotted or it's too long. Some but of the things that we've been that talking about. And he, well, of course he thinks the prose is terrible. I mean, he sort of famously doesn't think a lot of writers who are acclaimed for their right. sentence style. I mean, he doesn't think that sentence style as such is necessarily, or this kind of like clipped sentence style is actually all that good. No, he says it's the most critically acclaimed novel of the fall and it's astonishingly bad. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's interesting that I took out of that piece is the idea, and you said it too, that people feel like they started to read this book and they couldn't get through it. Yeah. Or they feel like, and Jim Lewis, I think it was him who said in his review, he was like, you don't realize what you're involved in until you're already halfway there. And I think that there is a feeling in this book, much like the feeling of our country in the Vietnam War, that you get yourself into something and you are committed to it and there's no way out. And he does create (laughs) – and, I mean, that could be a deliberate plot thing. It also is about reactions to this book because I think that once you read – 400 pages of this book, you sort of have to get through it. And you may resent that feeling or you may not feel like it or you may not want to. And in whatever way he's mirrored this experience of the GI in in Vietnam, I mean, I think it is true of that as a reading experience. And I think several, even the positive reviews, mention that fact. Right. That there's something about this book where you're sort of it's plotting in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. there is, it's like hard Messy work. Several, of the, word, several yeah. of the writers who've said it was a great book said it was hard work. Right. And that, I guess, that you feel like it's, you know, you're sort of committed to this book. It's hard work. It's like an achievement. And that also makes you love it once you're done with it in a way. But um, I think what I would but, say is, I mean, but Jim, you know, Jim also, Jim Lewis also said in the Times Review that, that, you know, at the end he wanted there to be more. That he was like, I wish it were long. I wished it were longer when I got to the end, et cetera. Which Jim may be the only person in America who felt that way. But, but I actually think what's interesting about I, think the, I don't actually agree that the book is plotting. I actually think on its own, each section is actually quite brisk in a way. And I think the sentences are it's, it's very readable. The dialogue is I thought quite striking, et cetera. I mean, the B. R. Myers thing is funny because all, he quotes all these passages in, in the thing, and he's like. Look how awful this is. And I keep kept saying to myself, oh, I think that's actually quite good. I really like that. Now, I'm a sucker for a kind of Johnson style. But I do think the reason the book feels, I don't know if it's unsatisfying, is what's interesting about the book. I mean, you talked about this sort of fake payoff at the end. I think one of the problems with the book from a ordinary reading experience is that there is almost no payoff to it narratively. Yeah, so sections right. start, yeah. stories yeah. start, and then things happen and then they just kind of fade away basically i mean even the structure of the book i mean not to give i'll just tell you but it's not like a huge a huge spoiler i mean the last i don't know what is it 100 and 100 pages are about a character who we barely have spent any time with for i mean storm is a very minor character for most of the book and then suddenly at the end 
he's on this kind of strange this crazy, journey. deranged, but, and nihilistic, yeah. just like all the other yeah. crazy, <laughs> deranged, and nihilistic That's right. fellows. Since they all seem yeah. the same, it doesn't yeah. really he, maybe make it. To be fair, but... though, Johnson does tip you off to this plot aspect with his title, Tree of Smoke. Right. I mean, the book is a tree of smoke. Yeah, there is no, is. every narrative is like yes. a branch on the tree yeah. of smoke. There is nothing that really happens that you care about at all in this yeah. book. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, I, I was going to say something about this and the, the narrative um, kind of unfurling that never quite happens because it, there's a funny moment in the book where someone mentions Dickens and you're like, Dickens? What a relief <laughs> it would be to read Dickens right now because this novel is kind of the anti-Dickens novel. You are introduced to characters at the beginning of the novel. For example, Kathy's ex-husband, Timothy, who has been who's de- died somehow and you think that this is going to be a major part of the story somehow figuring out his death her reaction to his death no not at all then there's another character who's killed um with a blow dart right. uh, a priest who you think is going to be a major part of the plot and in some way he is like he he's, he's kind, kind of, of a backdrop he he's an engine for things that happen later but in such indirect and um, but also by kind the, of uh, yeah, like elliptical ways. Yeah, and that, by the end, these things happen where somebody betrays somebody, and you're about to get like the payoff of this plot, and somehow you just don't care about any of it. Even yeah, when yeah. Skip Sands himself is hung, by yeah. that point you just don't care. So the normal melodramatic plot devices of which he employs ten thousand right. are all rendered completely meaningless right. by. You know, the kind of sheer magnitude, volume, and kind of, like, pervading apathy of this book. Well, but I actually think it's also, it's not just that. I mean, I think it's also just the way it's written. So, like, skip skip the hanging. I mean, that, we find out about it in this somewhat oblique way. And, and there aren't, I mean, I think there's some exceptions. Like, I think what happens early but on. But if you don't care that your main character is hanging, I mean, isn't that, I mean, I don't want to be conventional here, but isn't that sort of a flaw in a novel? Well, I'm not really sure, because I think part of the point is that Skip's life, in a way, kind of ends at some point in the 60s or the early, that his life in the sense of, like, he really cares about what's happening. It's just, you know, it kind of goes up in smoke in a way for him, right? I mean, I think that's... But, you know, I mean, it is interesting to contrast this with Angels, not that I want to keep doing that because many of our listeners won't have heard it, but in Angels, I mean, another character... Don't died. spoil that. Another character comes to an end, we can say. And you feel very differently about it than the way I felt about Skip here. And you also feel that this character's life has ended long ago in some sense. I mean, I guess there's some... No, no, no. See, I think version. that... I, well, we can't... I mean, we're not talking about it, but I would disagree about it, but... But I think, but we, but he doesn't always have to write the same book. Right? No, no, no. But I agree with Katie that I mean, and I think again, I'm inclined to feel that this is purposeful on Johnson's part. Like he chooses not to show us skips hanging. I mean, that's a, quite an, an unconventional choice. So it's got to be a pretty purposeful choice. And there are a number of things like that. The Colonel's death, for example. Well, we're not quite sure he did die when he does die. But again, when we first hear of it, we don't see it. It's just sort of tossed in a line, and you think, "Wow, really? This is how they're going to talk about the death I'm of still a main not character?" Really sure what happened. Well, no. and as we say, like the rape, exactly. the incredibly disturbing rape right. scene also, just in, in one, one paragraph, right. sort of a throwaway. Right. And, and it things is, that should you, matter he don't wants matter. us to be looking at the yeah. smoke, not at the tree. And I think that, that what you were saying about the atmospherics of the novel is really important. And I do feel that way. I did feel that way reading the novel. It's all about kind of the smoke of questions of salvation, of questions of meaning, and questions of quest. But it's never important that a particular character is feeling them. It's important right. that they are all feeling this somehow. And for me, I mean, that doesn't detract. Like, it can st- I still admire this novel. I admire it, but I can't love it. 
Like, I imagine that I just can't love this novel the way you would love another novel that you admired less. I mean, I right. see what he's doing, and I feel it was good for me to read this book. And I think that's one of the feelings that, like, causes all these good reviews and awards and prizes. <laughs> it is good for you to read this book. However, do you love it? Is right. it, like, really going to be with you? And, yeah, I mean, right. his other books, I think, are different in that respect. But yeah. for this one, I just, you know, there's a coolness, which is about the, he did make his aesthetic point successfully. Right. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't know. Well, we have five more minutes. I mean, what you just talked about, Katie, raises the sort of, again, the broader context of reading this American novel right now at this juncture in American history. Is that something that, I mean, that seems to me also to be part of. And I, I do like this novel, and I think it's an interesting novel. It's not my favorite Johnson novel, um, but there are moments along the way that are just kind of extraordinary. And I, I guess I was willing to read for that and to recommend it on that basis for those readers who, as Jim was saying, are interested in Johnson, the first part. But um, did you feel that there was a kind of special um, resonance that the novel had right now for you or not so much? I don't know. Um, that. No, I think it does. I mean, obviously his choice of subject. I mean, it yeah. seems like Vietnam is like a subject that has made itself for Dennis Johnson. I mean, mm-hmm. just in a lot of different ways. It is like it's the true. most mm-hmm. natural subject for him, mm-hmm. you know, of anything. But um, – and I do think there were things in this book that were really compelling. I mean, I thought the scene in the, with a the monkey in the beginning where mm-hmm. he kills the monkey is really amazing. And he does get at something about war that I don't think we know and think about a lot today. You know, we're a little more detached from our war. And I think yeah. that there is something in the immediacy and the and the psychology that he does get at that is really compelling. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a good take here on this kind of strange, what we talked about a little earlier, this sort of weird mix of American idealism and cynicism and toughness and an affection for violence and desire to do good and sort of the undercurrent of spirituality, you know, all of which I think are very... I mean, from my perspective, very kind of American and and that I think probably have something to do not with the Bush administration's motivations necessarily in Iraq, but with other kinds of motivations, maybe the soldiers there and things like that. But it was funny when I read it, I didn't really, I wasn't like reading it all the way through with a kind of Hmm. eye toward what this told us about Iraq. And I would be a little surprised if Johnson had kind of, you know, really had that in mind. I, I mean, there's something there. I mean, I think there's clearly some, some, resonance, some kind of relevance. But again, I mean, I think for me what's strange about the book or the way I would think about the book is, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who had reviewed it and didn't like it very much and said that he thought, very smart guy, had said that, you know, he thought Johnson got caught up too much with his theme or sort of with the big statement about Vietnam. And, but, but I was, and I said, well, what, what do you think the statement is? And he said, well, I'm not really sure there is a clear statement. And, and I, that's what I kind of think. I don't really think, I mean, I like the book, but I, because I don't think Johnson really is necessarily trying to make a huge statement about Vietnam or the CIA. No, I mean, the I think statement is like man is alone. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You know, the, and also that the motivations get mixed in. You know, the dirt gets the, the, the pearls get mixed in with the dirt. Yeah, and, exactly. Which is yeah. Something he returns to a lot in the yeah. book. Yeah, and I think that there's something. You know, this is a it's a good book at evoking. There are good parts of this book that evoke this kind of crazy world you start to live in if you live if you're in the intelligence community. The constant you know idea that everyone is on the make or you know you never know who's connected to who but you know there are a lot of books you can read or movies you could see that are better at that i mean the good shepherd or you know i mean there are but i mean i I guess the poeticism and the spirituality the kind of wonderment of the prose in this book is for me what's most compelling about it i mean you know i just liked the way it felt to be reading it 
uh, in some ways. And I think that's the that would be the case, I think, to make for the book, really. Yeah. Not the lesson Dennis Johnson is teaching you. Um, or the, even the characters that he's creating. Yeah. Definitely not that, I guess you would say. So. I think that's definitely true. I also think that Johnson is is preoccupied with certain themes in the book. And um, there's a quote on page 242 where he's talking about one of my favorite parts of the book was um, Skip ends up living in this uh, house where a Frenchman who was obsessed with tunnels and caves dies. And he gets kind of obsessed with the Frenchman's possessions and what's been left behind. And at one point he's talking about some of the things that were left. And he says, our sister, he's talking to the brother of the Frenchman who died and who's um, saying it's pointless to take them back. It's sad to take them. We must rescue the books and papers for the family library. Our sister makes it her passion. The papers, the papers. For her, it's our only legacy. But I say to her, why must we have any legacy at all? Things are destroyed over and over, the good things and bad things. So many wars and storms on the earth, destruction on top of destruction. And it felt to me that that was, if there were a theme in the book or a point, that that was part of it that you know and and that that was kind of aimed at us as reader as contemporary readers in particular i did feel that there were moments like that um but but i guess i shouldn't say that not in particular because obviously he's saying over and over that there is this kind of cyclical truth to war um and to our hopes for our motivations in terms of getting into war in the first place i mean i think the thing that's interesting about johnson is that he definitely is i mean the truth is i guess there have been a lot of great writers who have produced not such great work in recent years, I think. But I I think the truth of Johnson's career is if you look at it, I mean, he's an erratic writer. I mean, you know, The Stars at Noon, which is a book that is a very much, much shorter book, but actually has a lot of kind of affinities with this book. It's a book that's set in Nicaragua during the 80s, during the civil, during sort of the uh, civil wars in Central America. I think is flawed, doesn't really come off in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the long book previous to this, Already Dead, I mean, parts of it are absolutely extraordinary. Parts of it are just kind of resolutely mediocre. And it has, again, a kind of shaggy dog feel to it, even though it's it's sort of more contained. So, I don't know. He's not a writer that's trying to create, I think, always the sort of perfectly crafted jewel, even if he has done that in, in other places. So. On that note, I think we should bring our own um, maybe sprawling discussion to an end. But I'm really glad that you two could join me here for it. I feel like I learned a lot about the book. And I want to thank all of the listeners for our podcast. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's literary editor. And I want to thank again Katie Royfe and James Sirwicky. Thanks. For our next audio book club selection, we've chosen Elizabeth Gilbert's best-selling book, Eat, Pray, Love. That discussion will be available in early February. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.